57, verse 1. The righteous disappear and no man gives it a thought. The godly are gathered out, but no one perceives that from impending calamity the righteous are withdrawn. The calamity in the book of Isaiah is that which is wrought by the king of Assyria. He's the one whom the Lord uses to destroy the wicked. And yet his anger is not upon those who take pride in the Lord. Chapter 13, verse 3. As he charges holy ones called out as valiant ones. They come out from the destruction before it happens. That's how they disappear. The righteous disappear from the midst of the wicked. And people don't even realize they're gone. Don't miss them. Don't think about them. They're so busy doing what they're doing. The godly are gathered out. How are they gathered out? Well, in an exodus. In the book of Isaiah, the gathering is in an exodus from the four directions of the earth to Zion. And they walk through the fire and through the waters and so on. And when it happens, people are not even going to be aware that these righteous people have gone. They've left. The wicked are left by themselves. Now there's nothing there to prevent them from being destroyed. No one perceives that from impending calamity the righteous are withdrawn because they're all blind. Like the watchmen, they're blind. They don't see trouble coming. Everyone is after his own advantage and so on. They're all diverted to their own way. That's why they don't perceive anything. They don't perceive what the Lord does. An earlier chapter says they don't perceive the Lord's hands at work, neither the left hand nor the right hand. They don't see the Lord's right hand gathering up the elect, and they don't see the left hand ready to strike and destroy. Like Lot being taken out of Sodom, these godly are gathered out from impending destruction. Verse 2, They who walk uprightly shall attain peace and rest in their beds. Meaning there are those who are not going to rest in their beds. The wicked will not rest in their beds. Remember chapter 28? The couch is too short to stretch out on, the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in, there is no peace for the wicked, and so forth. They shall attain peace or salvation, the righteous will. Those who walk uprightly. Rest is a covenant blessing. Rest is synonymous with peace here, it's in parallel with peace. It's one of these synonyms of peace. Rest is also the condition of the elect in the millennium or in the new paradise that's to come. It's a time of rest. Verse 3, as for you, doesn't even say who it is, just you. As for you, come here, you children of the sorcerers, offspring of adultery and harlot. Yuck. Perhaps literal children, perhaps those, you know, born into that situation, or just simply disciples, as Isaiah uses the term also. Sons of the prophets are disciples of the prophets. People who adopt this lifestyle. It's always first literal, but also allegorical. As for you, come here. So there's going to be a confrontation between the Lord and these wicked people. At whose expense do you amuse yourselves? At whom do you open wide the mouth and stick out the tongue? So these wicked people are oppressing another people. Who do they oppress? doesn't take much to answer that question. It's the Lord's righteous people who are oppressed and made a mock of by the wicked. We read about it in chapter 54. Reproach and fear or shame were their lot for a time until the Lord turns the tables. They have to go through humiliation. And who humiliates them? The wicked do. But whom do you open wide the mouth and stick out the tongue? Mouth and tongue are also metaphors describing, in this context, the king of Assyria. And he mouths off against the Lord's people. And he is a tongue or mouth speaking great things against God and against the people of God, the book of Daniel also. 
there's an allegorical level, a metaphorical level, in which you can read that passage. These people are themselves mouthing off and scorning them, sticking the tongue out, but also it's the king of Assyria who's doing that. And the king of Assyria is the paradigm or model for the wicked, even as the Lord himself is the exemplar and model of the righteous. All those who are wicked, more or less, are following the paradigm set by the king of Assyria, who is the extreme example of wickedness. And everything that he does, they do, more or less. And everything that the Lord does, the righteous do, more or less. They emulate him. And the wicked emulate the king of Assyria, the king of Babylon. Surely you are born of sin, a spurious brood, who burn with lust among the oaks under every burgeoning tree, slayers of children in the gullies under the crags of rocks. While they're a cult group, they're sacrificing children in hidden places up in the canyons, in the gullies, out in the woods, where nobody can see them. And there they indulge in their orgies. They burn with lust among the oaks. Well, we've already seen several forms of that in the book of Isaiah. Nature cults. In chapter 1, for example, there's a word linked to chapter 1, with the oaks. You will be ashamed of the oaks you cherish and blush for the parks you were fond of. And the words cherished and being fond of there indicates lust as it is here. And they sacrifice to their false god and they have joy in their works for a season and then that god proves to be no god. He doesn't deliver them. Verse 6, Among the slippery stones of the ravines shall be your fate. They indeed are your lot. Stones, of course, indicates common stones versus precious and semi-precious. And your fate or your destiny, it's slippery. It's at the bottom of the ravine. And the ravine, of course, indicates a low place. And the stones of the pit is the place to which the king of Babylon is cast, the king of Assyria, is cast to the rock bottom of the pit. And they end up there too in other similar places. To them you pour out libations and make offerings. How shall I be appeased of such things? Over in chapter 56, across the page, you have the righteous there making an acceptable sacrifice and offering to the God of heaven and earth, to God of Israel. And here you have these other characters making offerings to their false God. And yet they're from among the covenant people of the Lord. He says, how shall I be appeased of such things? He's particularly offended because they are from among his people. But he doesn't call them such. He just says, as for you, verse 3, come here, you. Verse 7, on a lofty mountain you have made prominent your bed, and there you ascend to offer sacrifices. Behind doors and facades you have put up your emblems and have exposed yourself to others than me. Mounting your bed you have laid it wide open. This sounds like a harlot with her uh, pornographic imagery hung up behind doors and facades there exposing herself on her bed to whoever will buy her or hire her out. On a lofty mountain, however, implies an elite people or an elite nation. Those who were the elite of the earth were the covenant people of the Lord. And here, the covenant people of the Lord in their corrupt state. And that, again, goes back to the idea we saw in the beginning of chapter 54 about the espoused wife, the one wife who was cast off, who was received back, because she renews her allegiance to the Lord. And the other one who is the espoused wife, who now turns adulterous, she's cast off. So she's the one who qualifies for this person here. She's become a harlot. She's committing adultery. 
and you bargain with those with whom you love to lie your hand on their nakedness. She does it for money. But the word hand is also the metaphor describing the king of Assyria. Again, the link to him as the paradigm of wickedness. And we can think of the elite peoples of the world today who have been the Christian nations, by and large, in Western Europe and in America, and the lofty mountain or the elite nation here could refer to any one of those. Verse 9, you bathe with oil for the king and increase your perfumes. Which king is this? The Lord? No. It's the one who displaces the Lord, would be the king of Assyria or the king of Babylon, same individual. She has shifted in her allegiance from the Lord to him. And that happens when people become wicked. They're following the paradigm of wickedness, which is the king of Assyria, the king of Babylon. He provides the paradigm for the wicked to follow. There are two kings in the book of Isaiah, the king of Zion and the king of Babylon, who exemplify the two spiritual extremes, one of righteousness, the one of wickedness. She's bathing with oil. Oil alludes to a covenant sealed with oil. She's really into this hedonistic, adulterous lifestyle. You can find that anywhere nowadays if you look for it. And increase your perfumes. The Lord's people also worship with incense, but in each case of um, wickedness or apostasy, there is a counterfeit version of everything that is true and good. You send your solicitors far abroad and debase yourself to the depths. You're not content just to uh, entertain passers-by, but you also send your pimps out to get work for you. That's debasing. And we saw earlier in chapter 2, verse 9, mankind is brought low when men thus debase themselves. When people act this way, they bring the whole society down with them. They condemn the whole society. That's why the Lord has to bring the righteous out from among them before he destroys them. And they have nothing left to prevent them from being destroyed. Though wearied by your excessive ways, verse 10, you have not admitted despair, you have found livelihood, and therefore have not slackened. It's been profitable for a time, even though it's been excessive and aberrant, and you know there's something wrong with it, but just ignore that part of it. Let's carry on, this is good. Verse 11, Yet on whose account are you uneasy and apprehensive that you pretend and do not mention me, nor even give me a thought? Is it because I have so long kept silent that you no longer fear me? Even though you carry on this way, you know there's something wrong. Your conscience tells you that it's not right. God enlightens every man and woman who comes into the world and they have their conscience and they know intuitively what's right or wrong. Especially if being the covenant people of the Lord and you have been his spouse in the past and you know how it was then, now you pretend he doesn't exist. Don't even think about him. Shut him out of your mind that somehow will make him go away. I'm a little uneasy and apprehensive about that, though. The Lord says, Is it because I have so long kept silent that you no longer fear me? He has just been very patient and long-suffering and has let this happen and has not said very much about it. He's just kind of let it be because he lets people have their free agency to choose right or wrong. But they are his covenant people. There are consequences to covenant-breaking. He is the God of justice, There has to be an accounting. Verse 12, But I will expose your fornication and the wantonness of your exploits. When you cry out in distress, let those who flock to you save you. A wind shall carry all of them off, a vapor shall take them away. The time comes when that which was hidden is exposed. 
all the evils of the world are brought out into the open. They're declared from the housetops, the New Testament tells us. And the exploits here are in parallel with fornication. And departing from the ways of God in any way was likened by the prophets to adultery and fornication. It signified the apostasy of the Lord's people. Now also, this is allowed to happen to show what happens when people do that. The consequences of that kind of lifestyle will be there for all to see. As, for example, in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We saw what happens to that people. They were not always a wicked people. They were at one time when Lot came to dwell among them. Apparently, they were okay. But over time, they became more and more wicked till their iniquity was full, and then the Lord destroyed them. So much that when the angels came to Lot, they wanted to commit abominations with the angels. Their sin had reached an all-time low. And all of that will be exposed for people to see and to point to as paradigms or a learning lesson, things to learn from, so that others in the future will not make the same mistakes. It's not just a personal vendetta against these people. The Lord allows everything in the world virtually, all the imaginations of men's hearts, to run their course, to show what happens in each case, whether for good or for evil. When you cry out in distress, distress comes as a consequence of wickedness, it's a kind of curse. The enemy from without, the king of Assyria comes and burns the land and destroys with fire and with the sword. And what are you going to do then? He kind of mocks her here and says, well, then those who flock to you, those people who used your services, let them help you. Let them save you now. They saved you then, they provided you with a living. Now let them be your savior. A wind shall carry all of them off. A vapor shall take them away. Those are chaos motifs. Those people are themselves going to evaporate or be carried off as chaff in the wind. They will be reduced to nothing. They'll cease to exist just like you. But they who seek refuge in me shall possess the earth and receive an inheritance in my holy mountain. Two opposite fates, the wicked and the righteous. The righteous are those who seek refuge in the Lord. When? In that time of distress, in that time of calamity. And also before, they always seek refuge in the Lord from the oppression, from the wickedness around them. They will possess the earth and receive an inheritance in my holy mountain or his holy nation. They will be his holy nation. They will receive lands of inheritance, as we saw in chapter 54. They will possess the earth when the wicked are destroyed from the earth. They'll possess the whole of the earth. They'll dispossess the nations and resettle the desolate estates, as we read earlier. One's made desolate when the earth is destroyed. Verse 14, it will be said, excavate, pave a road, prepare the way, remove the obstacles from the path of my people. This verse has several linking places in the book of Isaiah. The excavating of the paving of the way, or preparing the way, is preparing for the coming of the Lord. Chapter 62, verses 10 and 11 are cross-referenced there. It says, prepare the way for the people, excavate, pave a highway cleared of stones, raise the ensign to the nations. The Lord has made proclamation to the end of the earth. Tell the daughter of Zion, see your salvation comes, his reward with him, his work preceding him. So there it's the coming of the Lord, and the highway is cleared of stones, meaning the wicked, the common stones, have to be cleared out of the way, either through repentance or through disassociation. Also there's a link to chapter 40, where it says, Pave a straight highway for our God. Every ravine must be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground must become level and rough terrain a plain. In the desert prepare the way for the Lord. For the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh see it at once. It's the coming of the Lord. The Lord comes with power. Chapter 40, verse 10. 
The context for that excavation and paving is the coming of the Lord. And the preparing of the way is done by the Lord's servant who comes before him. He's a foreigner and makes the way smooth for the coming of the Lord by preparing a people to meet him, a people who are pure, who have no more obstacles and stumbling blocks that they're dealing with. Prepare the way, remove the obstacles from the path of my people. Verse 15, thus says, He who is highly exalted, who abides forever, whose name is sacred. The one who is highly exalted, of course, is the Lord himself. But he himself went through humiliation and in that way established a paradigm or a model for us to follow. We too can become highly exalted. Chapter 52 talks about his servant being highly exalted. My servant being astute shall be highly exalted. Chapter 52, verse 13. His people Zion are exalted. They rise from the dust and sit upon their thrones. In chapter 52, verse 1, he is a model of exaltation. And we can follow that model by suffering humiliation patiently. Thus is he who is highly exalted who abides forever. And we can abide forever in him. And the Lord's covenant with us provides the way for us to do so. Whose name is sacred or holy. He's the Holy One of Israel. And he has a sacred name, and also the names of those whom he exalts are sacred. Remember, they are endowed with an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Chapter 56, verse 5. I dwell on high in the holy place, and with him who is humble and lowly in spirit. The holy place is in high, in other words, in his temple on high. But he doesn't confine himself to living there. He's not this intractable God in his ivory tower who is so separate from us that we can't even speak to him or know him. He dwells there, yes, but also with him who is humble and lowly in spirit. He dwells with us, not with everyone, just those who are humble and lowly in spirit. Refreshing the spirits of the lowly, reviving the hearts of the humble, repeats it. I will not contend forever nor always be angry. The spirits and souls I have made would faint before me. If people humble themselves before him, he will dwell with them. This idea of the temple appears again. Chapter 66, verse 1, talks about what house will you build me? What would serve me as a place of residence? And the answer is, yet I have regard for those who are humble and contrite spirit who are vigilant for my word. Yes, the Lord dwells in a house, but he also dwells with those who are humble. Same ideas in this chapter. In chapter 40, we also saw how he refreshes and revives. He supplies the weary with energy and increases in vigor those who lack strength. Those who hope in the Lord shall be renewed in strength and shall ascend as on eagles' wings. They shall run without wearying and they shall walk and not faint. Chapter 44, verses 29 and 31. And also we saw in chapter 38 how the Lord refreshes and revives King Hezekiah when he goes down into that low condition where he's on his deathbed and he's offering up his life to God and submitting himself humbly to God's will. There is humility and there is lowliness. O Lord, by means of such trials comes a newness of life and throughout them all the renewal of my spirit, says Hezekiah. So trials bring a rebirth and the Lord does that when people humbly and lowly submit to his will. I will not contend forever, nor always be angry. The spirits and souls I have made would faint before me. Verse 16. The Lord does contend, and he does hold the wicked up. He does confront them with justice. But there does come an end. There is only so much the Lord can do with people. 
If he chastised them forever, they would faint. They would see no light at the end of the tunnel. They would lose hope. And so he assigns people the different categories, precious, semi-precious, common, where they want to be. He will contend with them with his spirit or through his prophets, his servants. But there comes a time when they must make a choice. Verse 17, By his sin of covetousness I was provoked. I struck him and hid my face in anger when he strayed following the ways of his heart. Suddenly it's talking about the Lord's servant, right in the middle of nowhere. He too was one with whom the Lord had to contend. And that's the context here. And he too is one who humbled himself. But he too sinned. This verse, 17, could have gone at the end of chapter 52. And this whole passage, verses 17 through 19, could have gone at the end of chapter 52, where it talks about the servant, where the servant is marred, and then he's highly exalted when he's healed. But it doesn't say that there, it puts it over here in another context. By his sin of covetousness I was provoked. Covetousness is akin to idolatry. It is wanting something so badly that you keep coveting it or inordinately desiring it. And it can be covetous of things, as in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not cover thy neighbor's goods, thou shalt not cover thy neighbor's wife, or anything that is of thy neighbor. It could be coveting material things, or it could be coveting other things. By this the Lord was provoked, because he was supposed to be his servant, and he didn't pay enough attention to what he was supposed to do. So he was struck. I struck him and hid my face in anger, when he strayed following the ways of his heart. On the other hand, there are several ways of looking at it. The servant can also be and is a representative of the people. He represents them before the Lord. If he's fulfilling a proxy role, then the sin could be his people's sin rather than his own sin. You're never quite sure whose sin it really is, whether the servant was himself covetous and the Lord smote him or brought about Kevin curses in his life, or whether he got past that point and became like King Hezekiah and took upon himself the sins of his people and merited his people's deliverance from the Assyrians. And there he became a proxy, and the sin of the people or their unfaithfulness he answered for, even as Christ answered or the Lord answered in chapter 53 for the sins of his people on a higher level. You don't really know, it doesn't really say that, but we might say that it could be both, because first of all, usually in Isaiah things are literal, and then they could have other levels of meaning as well. I struck him and hid my face in anger. So the king of Assyria there has something to do with it. Perhaps the king of Assyria or those who are of that side, or of his side of things, are the ones who are marring him here. The striking undoubtedly is the marring chapter 52 mentions. When he strayed by following the ways of his heart, he has a weakness and Every man of God, it seems like everyone who comes to this earth is a flawed vessel of one kind or another and has something to repent of. Moses had a weakness. He struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock. You name anybody in the Old Testament and like Paul says, even with the prophets, he was ill-pleased with most of them. They didn't all fulfill perfectly. The only one who did that was the Lord himself when he came. Verse 18, Yet I have seen his conduct and will recover him. He apparently cleans up his act, and that's good. And if he's serving as a proxy, then the Lord is accepting of his sacrifice and recovers him or heals him. Recover and heal is the same word there. I will guide him and amply console him and those who mourn for him. The Lord guides people by his spirit, 
We've seen that already. He enlightens them by his spirit, gives them revelation. And so that's what he's going to do for him and console him. And after the humiliation, after the suffering, if the person is suffering those in all humility and submissiveness to the Lord, in the spirit of sacrifice, then the Lord turns things around and there is a reversal of circumstances. There's consolation. As I read a moment ago in chapter 40, where it says, Comfort and give solace to my people. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. This is at the reversal of her circumstances. Announce to her that she has served her term. Her guilt has been expiated. It's finished now. You can move on. I will guide him and amply console him and those who mourn for him. So there are some who are mourning for this individual because of all the things that he's suffered and that this person will suffer in the future. It will be those who care for him that those things happened and they too will be consoled with him. And no doubt they will be healed too if there's healing to be involved there. This kind of gives you a little insight into this servant. Verse 19, Who partake of the fruit of the lips, that is, those who mourn for him, who partake of the fruit of the lips, peace, well-being to those far off and to those who are near, says the Lord, who heals him. Peace, or well-being, as is another translation, is synonymous with salvation and healing anyway. Where are these people? Far off and near. The idea of those at home and those abroad. Those who are near are living in the promised land. Those who are far off are those still in exile who are ready to come, perhaps, from exile and to be received by those who are already there. We saw that in chapter 26, that same idea, where it says, Open the gates to let in the nation righteous because it keeps faith. Those whose minds are steadfast, O Lord, they are preserved in perfect peace, for in thee they are secure. There are those already in the city who welcome others from abroad into the city where they are protected by the Lord in the day of calamity. All of these people are partaking of the fruit of the lips. What does that mean? They accept the servant's preaching. The fruit of the lips is to convey the truth and messages of God, the revelations of God, prophecy. And the servant preaches to them. In chapter 50, My Lord Jehovah has endowed me with a learned tongue that I may know how to preach to those grown weary a word to wake them up. Morning by morning he wakens my ear to hear and as it study, my Lord has opened my ear. He opens his ears and receives revelations from God and he passes them on to people by way of preaching the word of God to them. And there are those who partake. It implies that there are those who don't partake. There are those who mourn for him as there are those who don't mourn for him. They couldn't care less. And implies that some are righteous and some are wicked. Peace to those far off and those who are near. But the wicked are like the raging sea, unable to rest. Verse 20, Whose waters heave up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. At that time, a dichotomy happens. At the time of the Lord's servant's mission, there is a dichotomy among the people. Some attain peace and some get no peace. When it says, there is no peace, says my God for the wicked, it really means no peace, a state of no peace. In other words, a state of turmoil, confusion, darkness, upheaval, whatever, is the opposite of peace. Like waters heaving up mire and mud. Those are chaos motifs. The wicked are left in a situation of chaos, where everything is topsy-turvy. They're unable to rest, They're like the raging sea, dragging up mud from the bottom and weeds and debris. And that's their lifestyle. That's how they are. And that's how they'll continue. The raging sea, too, alludes to the king of Assyria, who personifies the sea and the river. The sea in commotion, the river in flood. He's the one that destroys the wicked. And he's likened to the new flood that floods the earth. 
The wicked, in other words, come into his power. He has power over them. The Lord assigns him commission to destroy them, in fact, in chapter 10.